0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDIC.
1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Economic and Business History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Filippo De Chirico, and I'm the host of today's episode. Our guest today is Professor Ronan Bolton. Professor Bolton teaches energy policy at the University of Edinburgh and is the co director of the UK Energy Research Centre. Ronan, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Filippo. Today, we're talking about your book, Making Energy Markets and The Origins of Electricity Liberalisation in Europe, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2022. As we progress towards the energy transition, there are many discussions about finding the right balance between the state and the market in the energy sector. This is a great book about electricity markets, and it shows how in a decade, in the 90s, the whole industry shifted from being mostly state-controlled to a competition-based market system, first in Britain and then in the whole of Western Europe. Before discussing in detail the topics of the book, Could you tell us something about yourself? What do you do and why you chose to write Making Energy Markets?
0: Yes, so I'm uh, an academic at the University of Edinburgh, um, and I'm researching and teaching around the topic of energy technology and markets and and policy frameworks. My background is as an engineer. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering originally at the University of Galway in Ireland, uh, and I worked for a couple of years then in industry And then decided to pursue graduate studies. So I got quite interested in environmental sustainability. So I studied a master's degree on that topic here at the University of Edinburgh. Uh, And then through that, I got very interested in questions about energy transitions, the future of energy, low carbon transitions. And I pursued a PhD degree at the University of Leeds on that topic. And, And really, my entry point into that was coming as an engineer, someone interested in technology, but the relationship between technology and society and policy and how do we accelerate innovation and investment in clean, clean energy technologies and to transform our energy systems. So that was really my, um, the area that I got interested in for my PhD at the University of Leeds. Um, and the focus of that was on the networks, So the electricity and also I looked at the heat distribution networks. So the kind of local and regional systems in the UK, in Britain, uh, how they're organized, who owns them, uh, what is the role of regulation, what are the rules, what are the frameworks around these systems and how might might these need to change when we're thinking about um, transitioning uh, both supply and demand uh, in terms of our, our of our energy systems, um, and increasingly, as I got into it, I found that there, when people talked about you know the reasons why low carbon technologies or innovative technologies don't get um, the investment or aren't don't get the attention that people feel they should, you know, they talked about oh there's barriers or there's uh, kind of lock ins or these kind of broad reasons why technologies don't accelerate and innovate. Uh, but I w- wasn't really satisfied with some of these explanations. I thought there was there's something deeper to understand about how these systems uh, are organized and the kind of rules and the regulatory structures and the markets behind them. So I thought instead of talking about barriers and being frustrated about understanding why technologies mightn't change as fast as, as we might like, I thought, oh, it's better to really kind of understand these deep structures and, and get into the the origins of uh, these kind of regulatory and market structures as a way of understanding the kind of contemporary uh, issues and problems that we face in transitioning energy systems. So it was kind of looking at where we are today, contemporary research questions, but through that going back into the past and really focusing on this liberalized era, this era, as you said, in the from the late 1980s and really into the 1990s, when these systems were fundamentally transformed, when these regulatory frameworks and markets that we have today were really had their origins and they were really uh, implemented across European countries in that period. So I felt, you know, to really understand why and how energy systems change, we, you know, I think we need to focus a bit more on this period to understand that kind of um, broader governance structure around the energy system.
1: So your book starts. In Britain, um, during the Thatcher years, so in the late 80s, the government was pursuing a policy of privatization across most sectors of the economy. Um, Telecommunications, natural gas, uh, um, manufacturing companies were privatized, um, and somehow electricity was one of the last sectors to be reformed. Was there a reason? If so, why was electricity critical?
0: Yes. So as you said, there was this kind of sequence or this larger program of industrial restructuring and and privatization, which was happening in Britain in really during the Thatcher era. And the telecoms industry was privatized in 1983. Uh, Gas was in 1986. And then, as you said, it was a little bit later for electricity. It was 1990 and 91 when those privatizations eventually happened. Um, and the reason that electricity was one of the last ones was because the the perceive how the, those actors perceive the complexity of privatizing an electricity system and introducing competition reforms. Um, electricity, as you know, is a critical industry. Um, it's a real time industry, so it's very difficult and costly to store electricity. So it's a system that has to be run in real time. It has to be balanced every second. Uh, and it's absolutely, you know, crucial for the for other areas of the economy and society. You know, we know that when we um, hear about blackouts uh, and, you know, breakdowns of, of the electricity system, th- these, this has huge societal consequences, but there's also political consequences. And there are occasions when, you know, politicians lose their job because of a failure of the electricity system. Um, famously in in California. So I think because of the technical complexity of the system and I guess the political risks as well of it going wrong, that um, electricity, they didn't come to electricity until the end of that uh, privatization program.
1: One of the things that we learn in your book is that they literally had to reinvent the way the electricity system was run in order to make it competition based. How did that come about?
0: Yes, yeah, so the, the electricity system in Britain at the time is was quite different than it is today um, in terms of its geographic organization. So today there's an integrated electricity market across Britain but in those days the Scottish system was actually quite different. So I think to understand uh, how the reform happened I think the, the differences between Scotland and England and Wales is a good place to start. Um, So in Scotland, there were two vertically integrated systems and these were publicly owned. So one was the North of Scotland hydroelectric board and the other was the South of Scotland hydroelectric board. And these were vertically integrated as, as I said, so they were modeled really on the European style. So a very similar type of systems that you would have had in Germany at the time. So one entity doing everything from generation networks and right down to the the customer. Um, But in England and Wales, the system was organized a bit differently. There was one single entity which operated the majority of the power plants. Uh, So there's, say, about 70 large power plants in England and Wales and a large high-voltage transmission system. And the entity that operated that was publicly owned, and that was the Central Electricity Generation Board. And then underneath that, there were 12 regional suppliers and distribution companies. So these were integrated in terms of the distribution networks and then the uh, sale onto the end consumer. Um, So there was a difference between Scotland and England at the time. So the focus of the book really is mainly on, on the England and Wales system. And the big question at the time was, how do you introduce competition into a system which is dominated by one major actor, which is the CEGB, the Central Electricity Generation Board, and i think if you're looking for a contemporary analogy you would probably think of like edf electricity de france today it was a similar type of organization in terms of its scale in terms of of its influence on energy policy and electricity planning in the country so really the big question at the time was how do you do you, how do you split up the cegb how many different entities can you make out of the cegb uh, to privatize those and to have them as smaller competing electricity generating companies. That was one, one of the big questions they were thinking about. A second big question was the issue of splitting generation from the transmission grid. So when people look at electricity systems now, this is, you know, one of the kind of starting points, it's kind of taken a taken for granted kind of feature of electricity systems that generation and transmission are separated. But back in those days, it was a, a big question of whether this was actually feasible and whether there were um, risks to the actual uh, functioning of the, of the system if you separated out the generators. Um, so the people who ran the CEGP, who were mostly you know coming from a technical background and had held a lot of sway with government, were advising that so, you know you can't do this; it's risky, very costly. Um, we have to keep these integrated. Whereas the advocates of competition were saying you have to separate out the transmission grid because then that acts as the platform for competition. If you have a separate entity operating the transmission grid, you can have different generators coming on on the same term. So you don't have barriers to entry into the market. Because if the CEGB controlled the system in a competitive market, you know, they would clearly configure it in a way which acted against competition so this idea of on what people call today is unbundling separating out the transmission grid and having that operated independently from the generators and having that as the platform for competition and then having a i guess a practical means for organizing a wholesale market around the transmission grid so these were the big questions that they were facing um So, you know, today there is, I guess, to some extent a formula or a template for how we do these things, unbundling wholesale markets, uh, having diversity in the market and things like that and retail competition. But all of these things had to be negotiated and to some extent invented during this during quite a short period from the late 1980s. So the, the third Thatcher government was elected in 1987 and in their manifesto, they had a promise to privatize and introduce competition to the electricity market. And the legislation to do that was uh, passed in 1989. So it was quite a short period when these issues had to be tackled and addressed. Um, And eventually, in the case of England and Wales, uh, in this story, they they ended up with a configuration of having two privatized generators uh, competing against each other in the new market. So one was called National Power. So that was a larger company um, and this the smaller competitor. So they out of the CEGB, they kind of created these two entities, and the other second one was called PowerGen. So these were competing against each other and they operated the coal plants. Um, but during the process, they found they had initially intended to also privatize the nuclear power plants. But they found that because of the huge risks and fundamental uncertainties around the costs of uh, decommissioning nuclear power plants, of dealing with the waste, that private investors weren't willing to take the risk of investing in nuclear. So they kept the nuclear industry in the public sector. So you had a public sector nuclear company, National Power and PowerGen as the two competing private generators. And then you had the regional electricity companies. So these were made out of the air, the previously publicly owned area boards. So these were private, regional distribution and supply companies. So they were also competing in the market. So they were purchasing power from National Power and PowerGen and selling it onto consumers. But throughout the 1990s, they also became more active in the generation market. They were also able to invest in their own power plants and to compete in in the wholesale market. And it was through that competitive dynamic a little bit later in the nineteen mid 1990s and late 1990s that you had this famous dash for, dash for gas in the UK. Um, one of the big concerns that the regional electricity companies had was that they were, in, to some extent, locked into uh, a market which was dominated by those two generators, National Power and PowerGen. Um, and to some extent, they didn't trust the prices that were coming out of the market because they believed that there was too much market power, that these you know, big generators were able to set the price to some extent. And there was a lot of controversy about market power, quite a lot of investigations into, into that, that issue in the market. Uh, the regulator was quite actively looking at this issue. But in order to hedge those risks, the regional electricity companies started investing in their own generators to become less reliant on those dominant Uh, Legacy incumbents, so it was that kind of competitive dynamic dealing with those risks in the market which drove these investments in in new power plants uh, throughout the nineteen nineties. So those were the kind of big key structural issues that changed in the in the in the British power market at the time, Um, starting with England and Wales and the reform of the CEGB and the creation of the regional electricity companies. And then a bit later, uh, the Scottish companies were also privatized. And then the British market was created in the early 2000s when the Scottish system was integrated with the uh, England and Wales system, which is this market that we have today.
1: What were the consequences for the consumers in those early years?
0: Yes. So this was one of the big issues uh, leading up to the 1989 Uh, Electricity Act, about to what extent do you allow consumers to make choices in the market? And actually, early on in the debate, the issue of what we now call retail competition, of allowing consumers to make choices in the market and to choose their supplier, this wasn't a mainstream idea. This wasn't one of the main topics that they were discussing. Much of the focus was on the CEGB, the generators, uh, the operation and ownership of the transmission grid, you know, things like that on the upstream side of of the system. Um, So it wasn't until a little bit later that they really got into this question of whether you can have retail competition for consumers. The intention was always to have the large industries to be able to choose their suppliers. And even in the nationalized era, they had some degree of choice in the market. They were able to negotiate contracts with the regional electricity companies and some of the very large ones that were connected to the transmission grid were able to negotiate directly with the CEGB about their tariffs. Um, So the intention initially was to have the big industries to be able to compete, but really you'd you'd retain those kind of regional monopolies. Normal households and most businesses would stay within the kind of regulated pricing structure uh, and stick with their regional supplier. Um, But advocates for retail competition became a stronger voice during the process, and they began to convince politicians that this was an opportunity to really transform the industry and to have consumers able to make choices. Um, But that didn't kick in immediately because they were worried about, I guess, there was a trade-off, really, an essential trade-off between privatization, because you needed investors to come in and to buy up these uh, regional electricity companies. And the question was, would investors buy the companies and pay the price that the government wanted if immediately their businesses would be subject to this competitive effect and that the business that they buy into could lose customers very quickly so there was a bit of a trade-off there between competition and privatization on the other hand which had to be negotiated and the way they solved it was by phasing in retail competition so initially for the first couple of years it was the large industries Uh, And then after in the middle 1990s, it went down to the kind of smaller industries and the commercial consumers. And it wasn't until 98, 99 that normal domestic consumers were able to choose their supplier. So it was a part of the, I guess, the design of the liberalization process in terms of managing those risks of competition and having that trade off with privatization because the government was in favor of competition but they were also concerned about privatization and the proceeds that they would get from those privatization sales so the investors and the uh, the voice of the investors in the city you know uh, had an influence over that kind of um, degree to which competition came into effect and the speed at which it happened
1: so let's cross the english channel and let's talk about Europe in general. Uh, In the very same years, Britain is building this market-based system for power. European countries are creating the single market. In 1986 they convened to create the single market by 1992. What are their proposals concerning energy and electricity in particular?
0: Yes, so the back in those days, there was a strong emphasis on integrating Europe through markets. And that idea was really being pushed by Jacques Delors, who's a name many people will will recognize. So he was the president of the commission from the mid-80s to the mid-90s and a very influential European figure in history. Um, And it was through his initiative that this kind of single market agenda that we have today kind of had its origins. Um, They published a white paper, which was Drafted by a commissioner called Lord Cofield, a British commissioner, in 1985. And he ide- he looked across all of the economic sectors and identified kind of barriers to European integration and proposed kind of fundamental ideas around the single market, like mutual recognition and standards and harmonization and things like that. Um, but in that document and the subsequent Single European Act of the of 1986, And the energy sector didn't feature very strongly. It wasn't really part of that original agenda. Um, It didn't come onto the scene until I think it was 1988, 1988, when a commission document called the Internal Energy Market. It was the first use of that term uh, in this document from 1988, which was specifically about bringing this single market agenda to the energy sectors. And I think one of the key drivers for that, it wasn't just about the politics and the idea of european integration that was one part of it but there was also a broader global commodity cycle shift that had been had been happening so if people um, you know, are familiar, people will be familiar with the terms of, you know, the oil crises of the 1970s, a period of very high volatility, high oil prices, oil producers, you know, really kind of uh, exerting their power over the markets. There was an oil embargo in the early 70s and the Iranian revolution. So these, this kind of volatility uh, raised prices, disrupted the European economies. Um, it prompted European governments to get much more of, involved in energy in 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 terms of supporting indigenous resources uh, and also having industrial strategies around um, energy industries. So quite similar to the debates that we're having today. So for example, in France, they went down, you know, accelerated their commitment to nuclear power, a domestic source, part of their big industrial strategy for France. In Britain, there was a more investment into the mining industry in the late 1970s, an indigenous source. uh, They introduced long-term contracts, binding contracts between the electricity generator, the CEGB, and the Scottish companies, and the British Coal, which was the nationalized coal uh, mining organization. Uh, Similarly, in Germany, there was long-term contracts between mining, coal mining, and electricity generators. And that was subsidized by something in West Germany called the coal penny, which was a a levy on everybody's bills. So really propping up domestic sources based on this idea that, you know, we need to become more self-sufficient, insulate ourselves, you know, from these kind of high and volatile global energy prices. But the cycle turned from the mid-1980s. The oil price went down quite significantly. Uh, There was liberalization in the oil sector, more sources coming on stream, for example, the North Sea and so on, Alaska, uh, and also parallel in the coal coal industry. There was a big investment in coal production globally. So you had producers from Colombia, Indonesia, Australia, which was much cheaper coal than was being mined in places like West Germany and Britain. And there was a burgeoning emerging coal market, global coal market. So that was able to be imported into places like Rotterdam. Uh, And it was, as I said, much more competitive, much cheaper than European coal for various reasons, because these were large open cast mines, cheaper labor, all of these issues. Um, So that change in the global commodity cycle put pressure on this kind of European approach of, you know, policy support for domestic sources, industrial policy. So that was a, a kind of a, I guess, a global pressure on on that European regime, as it was at the time on those energy policies. And that was creating concern for Uh, the European Commission at the time. So that featured quite strongly in that 1988 internal energy market document, this concern about competitiveness of European industry, the need for European consumers, large industries to access these cheaper sources of energy on the global markets. Um, They were quite critical of a lot of the domestic policies and subsidies that were in place, both as a barrier to achieving you know, European integration, but also uh, accessing cheaper energy supplies. So I think those two issues came together at this particular point in time, alongside a political movement or shift towards uh, an emphasis on markets, competition, um, and European integration as well. Um, So that really kind of framed that document of the internal energy market from 1988. And their ambition at the time was to implement that quite quickly so to do something similar like what the british did so the british had this period from 1987 to kind of 1989 90 where they you know they did this in a very com- compressed time period and i think the commission had a similar time frame in mind they thought you know by 1992 with the other single markets reforms we could we could do this for the for the electricity and gas industries um but as it turned out for various political reasons, also changes within the structure of the European communities at the time, the Maastricht Treaty uh, from the early 90s, the rise in prominence and influence of the European Parliament. So there was more actors on the scene, Um, different member states views came into the mix, they were able to be represented. Um, And the commission throughout this kind of 1990s period was probably less influential maybe than they were in the Uh, earlier in the 80s Um, so the process at the european level for for those reasons because of the institutional complexity and the politicized nature of the whole thing um, it was quite a bit slower so it wasn't until mid 90s late 90s until the first european directives on uh, energy electricity and gas liberalization could be finally agreed Um, so it was really i think the chapter in the book that covers that is called the political market So it was really a story of politicization of the market.
1: You mentioned member states and their opposition to the market-oriented reform that the Commission had in mind. Your book talks quite extensively about Germany and France, for instance. And they had different reasons to oppose such a reform. Can we just shortly recall what those were?
0: Yeah, so in the French case, it was actually an interesting story because initially in the mid to late 80s, EDF, so the French monopoly electricity generator and, and transmission company, um, a nuclear dominated system, they were quite keen on the this idea of trading across borders and selling electricity. They were looking at the German market and the high prices that German industry were paying at the time because of the partly because they were subsidizing the coal industry in Germany. And they were, well, we could undercut this. We could capture a lot of that market and, you know, gather a lot of revenue for EDF. Um, So they saw the opportunities in cross-border trade. Um, But there were were, uh, features of the liberalization process, which they saw happening in the British case, which fundamentally they really didn't like. They saw their sister organization, the CEGB, being dismantled, split up generation and transmission being separated uh, it being hived off in in, into different competing companies Uh, you know the problems arising in the nuclear power industry in Britain as it was exposed to these competitive forces Um, so really when they saw the structural implications of competition and reform they turned quite fundamentally against it Um, so that was the French case uh, in the West German case, they were probably a bit more keen on competition and reform and liberalization, you know, in, in as, a I guess, a philosophy. Um, but there were practical kind of internal issues within the German system and the German energy economic sector that they wanted to deal with first. So firstly, they wanted to address the decline of the coal mining industry in in a different way than the British did. So rather than having a, I guess, almost like a cliff edge or a a very quick wind down of the coal industry, they wanted to do it in a more managed phased incremental way. So they felt that, you know, a rapid change shift to competition would destabilize the mining industry and employment in those sectors. Um, So they wanted to manage it a bit more and, stretch out the time frame. They were also concerned about integration between East and West Germany. Um, so following the reunification, there was a, a big issue of investment in the electricity industry in the East. And the West German government had basically co-opted as, as part of the unification contract, um, a number of the large West German electricity utilities to invest in the East. Um, so that would require a huge amount of capital Um, so they didn't want to, I guess, undermine and expose these companies to competitive forces, uh, in the interests of, you know, having that large investment program in the East. So there in, in Germany, there was, you know, to some extent they wanted to go down this road, but they wanted to deal with these issues first. So Germany kind of came on board a bit later in, in, in the 1990s.
1: In the end, the first directive on uh, European electricity is approved in 1996. Could you just outline what the content of the directive is?
0: Yes. So in spirit, and it was you know similar to what the British had done in terms of competition between different generators, separating out transmission and generation and having consumers having the, the choice and ability to, uh, you know, choose their supplier and, and have a retail market. Um, but in many respects, it was a weaker version of that because of the political issues and disagreements um, and the different different views of different member states. Um, so in order to, to get agreement and accommodate, to bring all these different uh, member states on board, um, they had to have a looser arrangement um and also having a choice of different models um so particularly southern european countries italy and spain they they had a i guess a different philosophy in greece as well a different philosophy on how to on the role really of electricity in society that this isn't shouldn't be framed as a commodity that it's not about you know privatization and profit this is about a you know a public good um And these should be publicly owned and, you know, organized for the common good. So it's just kind of a very different kind of philosophy and approach to it. And then you had the issues in France that we talked about, you know, the concern of EDF, their reluctance to go down this structural route. Um, So within the directive, they had, you know, different choices. So a country could kind of basically adopt the British kind of liberalized reform or they could have something else, which was a watered down version um, and they could introduce something called a single buyer, which was a centralized actor who would, you know, do the trading, but could still be publicly owned, essentially. So EDF could have a single buyer and control the market rather than opening it up to different actors and entities coming in and undercutting them. Um, so you had different choices like that. Um, also, the, sh- the separation between generation and transmission was weaker than in the British case. So you could have the same fundamental you know, organization doing those two things. They just had to have separate accounts uh, so the kind of accounting unbundling rather than kind of pure separation of the businesses. Um, and also on the retail competition, it was over really a decade that they were looking to phase that in. and um, So really it was a stepping stone rather than the kind of final end point in terms of a European liberalization. And I think it wasn't really until the late 2000s that, they really kind of reached that end point of um, having a you know a, a fully kind of um, a fully agreed upon European approach to a liberalized kind of uh, electricity and gas regime.
1: Something I learned actually reading uh, the book. One of the many things I learned was that the European Union was not the only case of uh, harmonization of national energy markets. And um, you talk quite extensively about the, the Nordic case, Norway and um, the region.
0: Yes, yes. So Norway was on a similar time frame as, as Britain in terms of um, it was 1990 when they introduced competition and liberalization reforms in the Norwegian Energy Act. Um, obviously, as people would know, Norway has a very distinctive energy kind of history and characteristics of its energy system. It's it's a predominantly hydro-based system. Um so there aren't many kind of you know gas or coal power, there are no coal have been no coal-fired power plants in Norway. It's over 95% hydro. Um, and that system was built up in the 20th century uh initially driven by large industrial consumers who were investing in hydro plants. Um, and then the state came in in 1950s and 60s and started building the larger hydro schemes through an entity called Statcraft, which was the publicly publicly run and owned uh, electricity company. And then a lot of the municipalities and regional authorities were also investing in in hydro plants, kind of at the small and medium scale, for you know supplying the towns and then the cities outside of outside of Oslo. So there, it was quite a diverse picture. In terms of the Norwegian electricity system, uh, so they were debating during, throughout the 1990s. We, you know, the Norwegians were saying we have this very fragmented. They thought it was quite disorganized, um, lacking efficiency in terms of the organization of the system as a whole. So there was kind of a debate happening in the 90s on the labor side of the political spectrum. They wanted to aggregate the industry, make it more concentrated and have it more centralized, more state controlled. Whereas on the right, uh, they were keen on ideas of competition. There was a process of liberalizing the Norwegian economy, which was happening um, across different sectors, across the banking sector and telecoms and other areas like that. It's quite quite similar to the British uh, case. And it was in the late 90s when the political actors on the right. So when the Conservative Party came in and they implemented their their ideas, which was about using prices, using competition uh, to, it, as they saw, to improve the efficiency of the sector. So Norway was in parallel really to Britain as one of these first countries to do this. Um, and they created a wholesale power market. So this was the, the genesis or the origins of what we have today, which is called Nordpool, which is the the Nordic, integrated electricity market. So that was created by the Norwegians uh, as a means of coordinating the different, the huge amount of hydropower plants that they had. So an issue in in terms of a hydro, hydro sector is, you know, which hydro plants do you utilize at particular points in time, you know, given the geographical features of the country, And what's called, you know, the opportunity costs of depleting the reservoir. So at certain points in time and in certain places, it'll make sense to have, you know, this generator versus that generator coming on the system. So they were using these kind of market style. They didn't call it a market. It was kind of an organizational tool to optimize the hydro systems. Um, And that had been in place in the 70s and 80s. So they really took that when they introduced competition and updated it and met it as the the platform for introducing price-based competition into the hydro sector. Um, And then a couple of years later, Sweden went down a similar track of um, reforming its industry, dealing with the kind of dominance of Vattenfall, their publicly owned company, introducing more competition. Um, But because the Swedish didn't, Break up Vattenfall. They kept Vattenfall as the dominant player in the Swedish market. Um, a Swedish market wouldn't have been practical. It would have just been dominated by Vattenfall. So, what it made sense for the Swedish to join into the into the Norwegian market, which had already been running. It was a fairly stable market in terms of the predictability of the prices because you could look at the uh, the rainfall and the you know uh, levels in the dams and so on. Um, so you could kind of predict. Uh, and it would give you some level of certainty about the kind of evolution of prices um over the long term so that kind of was a stable uh, basis for their kind of market for the competition in the swedish sector so they joined together in um 1996 i think it was when they created what we call today as nordpool uh, the, so that was the first um multinational cross border market based on competition um and then later, Finland and Denmark, and into the 2000s, the Baltic countries joined. And essentially, if uh, when the the wider European Union was looking to integrate its its kind of fragmented electricity systems, they essentially took the Nordic model of having a combined single market across different national borders, but having separate national transmission systems. So when Sweden joined. Nordpool, they didn't give up control of their transmission system in terms of the uh, investment in the grid and the kind of second-by-second second balancing. That was still done at a national level. Um, what they integrated was the, the pricing and the operation of the cross-border connectors. Um, so that kind of suited the European picture as well. So you could have you know a market, but enable countries to retain control of their systems, um, which they were keen to do. So really, the Nordic one is important because it was the first cross-border example of electricity markets, and it later became the European model.
1: We have covered in very broad lines the topics of your book, but since you're here, and uh, I know you are a keen observer of current affairs in energy markets, I wanted to ask you something about the rise of renewable sources and how they may impact the role of our regulation i think one of the one of the issues let's say in the book was that the environmental question is there but it sits on the back in those days people were aware to some extent of of the impact of the energy industries but not as much as today and now we also have new technologies, and renewables are rising. What will be the, their impact, and what has been in, in recent years? Yes, so the impact
0: of renewables in, in the European markets has been quite profound. Um, so originally, the idea behind these markets was that you would you would have the operation of the systems organised through pricing. So prices would tell you which power plants is, you know, at the cheapest at a particular point in time and what mix of power plants, it would make sense for a country to, to, to use at a particular point in time, but also that prices would give you long-term signals about investments. So if prices were kind of persistently high, uh, in a country that that would send a signal to private investors that, okay, it makes sense to invest here. We will make a return, look at the pricing signals. So that was the kind of idea behind the markets that prices would tell you how to not just run the system but how to transform it in the long term but renewables has fundamentally changed that so the vast majority of the investment in renewables across europe has been based on government contracts rather than market prices so governments offering long-term contracts whether that's a feed-in tariff like a fixed price over 10 or 15 years Um, a renewables obligation certificate, which is an extra revenue stream alongside the market or something like a contract for difference where you have side payments to kind of even out the fluctuation in the market prices. Um, So most of the investment in renewables is based on these government public contracts, which is kind of in contrast, stark contrast to the original intentions and philosophies behind the liberalized model. So it's, it's actually kind of a, a profound change that's happening uh, in Europe these days as renewables become a much more dominant feature of our electricity systems. Uh, and mo- much of that investment being done on the back of public guarantees rather than market prices, it has diminished really the role of, of markets in the long-term transitioning of these systems. I think markets still play a very important role in pricing signals in terms of the kind of day-to-day operation. You know, what is the mix of power plants and renewables and 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 nuclear and so on that is the cheapest and kind of optimal mix for us to meet our demands on a short-term basis. But in terms of transitioning to net zero and low carbon and all the rest of it, I think it's fair to say that the markets play a much diminished role than um, would have been envisaged back in, you know, the period of the book. And that's largely because of the cost structure of renewables compared to fossil fuel powered plants. So if you think of a gas-fired plant or a coal-fired plant, they're obviously, especially, you know, a gas-fired plant, a modern one is very efficient. It's expensive kits, expensive to build, but really a lot of the costs over the lifetime of the project is in the running costs, is in purchasing the fuel and operating the plant. <clears throat> so prices make sense in that world. You know, the the ups and downs of commodity prices can be reflected in the fluctuating electricity price and you can kind of manage the system in that way. And they kind of they align together in a coherent way, whereas for the case of renewables, for, you know, large offshore wind farms or whatever you have, big solar parks, the costs are up front. It's about the big investments. And once these plants are are constructed and operating. They cost very little to run. you know you don't have those fuel costs, so kind of prices don't have the same meaning. They don't have the same they don't provide you with the same information about the actual uh, cost of operating this plant. It's most mostly concentrated in those kind of upfront investment costs. So really, that's the reason why kind of markets and fluctuating prices haven't been relied upon. To, to make these big investments in renewables, so I think it's it's quite a, a fundamental change, and it's the reason why we're seeing much more government involvement. Uh, people, you know people call it intervention and so on, but it's really about going back to a world that we had before these markets, before the the period of the book, when states, either through public companies or long term contracts or kind of regulatory structures, planned out these systems. Uh, offered long-term contracts and, um, you know, then structured prices in a way to kind of pay back those big investments. We're we're back in that type of world, maybe a bit of a hybrid world between the two at the moment, between the market world and the state planning world. So I think the question going forward is whether uh, we revert back totally to a state plan type of system, or we can kind of have the benefits of markets in terms of optimizing, having kind of efficient pricing signals, giving us information about what the optimal mix at a particular point in time is. I think markets can still have an important role there and they have played an important role, for example, during the energy crisis in in balancing the systems across the borders. Um, so perhaps we're moving in, into that kind of hybrid world where investment is done on a long-term basis, coordinated by states mainly, and then we have markets doing around the edges, kind of optimizing the system.
1: On this note, um, over the past two years, two, three years, first with the, um, the pandemic and now uh, with the war in Ukraine and all the disruptions on the gas market, we've actually seen the relationship between the state and the market change quite a bit. Where do you see it going?
0: Yes, so that's a very good question <laughs> and a challenging one too. In some ways, the way I think about it, thinking about the crisis and and the markets, I I see it as like there's almost a paradox of the markets uh, when I think about the crisis. So in some ways, relying on markets and short-term contracting, you know, say buying gas on the global gas market based on short-term signals. Um, relying on, you know, markets and prices in terms of operating our power system as opposed to kind of maybe more a more long-term plan view. You know, we talked about that we're in this hybrid phase between the two, but there's still a lot of short-term contracting. So in some ways that left Europe vulnerable to the Russian actions because by constraining the flows on the pipelines from Russia, they were able to have a a huge effect on the spot prices for gas and power as well in Europe, because the two were very linked gas and power prices. So in some ways the market and reliance on markets left us vulnerable, but then in another way, the market saved Europe. So if we think of how the market reacted, we saw this huge increase in uh, liquefied natural gas inflow into Europe very rapid beyond the expectation of many people that, you know, in terms of what would, what would the feasibility of liquefied natural gas to replace those Russian flows? I don't think uh, many would have predicted that. And the huge flows that have come in from places like Qatar and the United States um, into Britain and Spain, where you have these big LNG terminals. Obviously the prices had to rise to very high levels to enable that to happen. But, In some ways, that's how markets work, you know, prices rise and you get more supply Um, and also in electricity. So we had problems in the French nuclear power sector. A lot of their power plants were taken offline, unfortunately, last year for maintenance issues. So we had, we saw huge cross border flows from places like Britain and Spain into France to kind of make up that shortfall. And that wouldn't have been possible without that kind of integrated market that we talked about. so in some ways, the markets played a fundamental role in delivering resilience for Europe at a very high price, it has to be said. Um, so that's the way I see it. It's very difficult. To, it, I think a lot depends on the political narrative that comes out of the crisis, whether it's framed as, OK, this was something that made us vulnerable. We have to go back to a state planned long term contracting, less reliance on prices and so on. So because we don't want to be in this situation again. Or is it the narrative that, look, the markets worked really efficiently, we were able to balance the systems, the lights didn't go out, we've shifted really rapidly to a new type of gas system and the power markets worked. Um, So I see it in those two ways. And I think it's a political debate that's happening in Europe at the moment and which narrative wins out, I think will have a great bearing on, I think the future kind of organization of these systems. Um so I wouldn't dismiss the idea that Europe will continue its commitment to the kind of basic philosophy of markets and liberalisation, but maybe amend it slightly, have a bit more of a um a planned strategic approach in certain areas. so we've talked already about investment in renewables as one where I think we'll see more more state contracting. I think another area is around seasonal storage, so having you know, these issues in the gas sector, um, gas obviously plays a huge role in kind of meeting the winter peaks that we see, particularly in northern Europe because of the cold weather. You know, our energy consumption goes up quite significantly. So gas has played a fundamental role in enabling us to manage that kind of seasonal fluctuation. Um, so I think we may need some kind of a uh, a plan around how that's going to work in the future as we move away from gas towards a renewables-based system. I think the solutions in terms of delivering that seasonal flexibility aren't quite obvious yet. So I think we're going to to need some uh, long-term thinking around that, that issue. And then the third issue is around networks and systems and infrastructure, partly because of renewables. So the geography of the renewables resource is quite different, obviously, than kind of inland power stations, you know, near coal mines and rivers and so on. We're going to be moving to a system with more offshore, windy, remote regions, um, much more solar in Southern Europe, you know, so we need to kind of beef up the capacity of the networks in terms of the north, south kind of flows of energy that we're going to see. Uh, and also the changes in the gas markets, more liquefied natural gas. So reinforcing the onshore Uh, infrastructure to enable the system to absorb that LNG as it comes in so I think there's a big kind of infrastructure challenge as well for Europe Um, so I think maybe the kind of markets versus state thing is one way of thinking about it but I think you need to break it down and look at these kind of specific issues and challenges so I think maybe uh, in in the next couple of years, as the dust settles, we'll see a bit of a reconfiguration and more of a strategic view around those issues of seasonal flexibility, uh, networks and planning of the networks uh, as well.
1: Let's hope so. Ronan, thank you so much for this interview. And I really enjoyed talking to you. Before we go, I have one last question, and that is, what are you working on at the moment?
0: Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me, and I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, I'm working on the energy crisis, so I've obviously been following that very closely as it's unfolded over the past couple of years. Um, So I want to be able to, I guess, update the material I had in the book uh, to think about markets and government, the role of governments in in I guess, leading us into the energy crisis, you know, how did we end up in this energy crisis situation and what might be the future, what might be the aftermath of that and the consequences of that. Um, so I think it's a bit earlier to conclude that work. It's uh, We're still in a a bit the, the early stages of, of that story, but it's something that I'm keen to follow up on. And I'm also working on as part of the UK Energy Research, Research Centre, uh, working on projects where we look quite a lot at Uh, networks and the regulation of networks and the kind of issues around um, integrating renewables and things like electric vehicles into uh, electricity networks and how we might be able to plan those systems and deal with those integration challenges uh, a bit better. So those are the two main topics that I'm working on at the moment.
1: Great. So looking forward to reading your works and having you back on the New Books Network.
0: Thank you. I look forward to it.
1: Thank you so much.